You know, for the last eight Sundays in a row, we've been studying the life, the faith, the character of Simon Peter. And today we're wrapping up this sermon series as we learn together from the last letter that Peter wrote to the churches, Second Peter. We've called this series Peter the Unlikely Disciple because the man that we discover in Scripture is almost always portrayed as just an ordinary normal man, perhaps sometimes even a flawed man, just like you and just like me. You know, Peter sought to follow Jesus faithfully, but sometimes he was confused, sometimes he was afraid, sometimes he faltered, sometimes he failed. He was just a normal fisherman who one day was called by Jesus to come and follow him. He walked on the water when Jesus said, step out of the boat, but he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink in that water. He was the very first to proclaim, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. And not long after, he denied Jesus, even knowing him, three times. Peter spread the gospel throughout the Roman world, and he suffered greatly for his faith. The stories of Peter's shortcomings serve, I think, to humanize him. And they allow ordinary Christians, ordinary Christians like you and like me, I think to really identify with him and to see a part of ourselves in him. You know, when Peter wrote this second epistle to the churches that he'd come to love throughout the Roman Empire, he knew that his life was fast approaching an end. Now, tradition holds that Peter died during Emperor Nero's horrible persecution of the Christians in Rome around AD 67 or 68. We believe that Peter was probably in Rome when he wrote this letter, maybe even writing it from a Roman prison. And when he was sentenced to die by Roman crucifixion, he did not deem himself worthy enough to be crucified in the same manner that our Lord Jesus had been crucified. And so he asked to be crucified upside down on a cross. And he was buried in the place where St. Peter's Basilica stands in Vatican City to this day. Ask yourself this question. If you knew that your life was coming to an end and you had a chance to say something important to the people that you really cared about, to the people that you loved, what would you say? Not everybody gets that kind of a chance, do they? But Peter knew that the emperor Nero was going to have him executed. And so he decided to write what would be his last letter, his final words to the church. And so he packed this letter with passionate words of encouragement for them. And also with some words of warning. Peter had some things that he wanted the members of the churches to remember as he approached the end of his life here on earth, he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, 1, verses 12 to 15. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. 
And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. 2,000 years later, we remember these things because of Peter's faithfulness. Now, the Bible often refers to our body as our earthly tent. Think about it. An earthly tent, thank goodness, is just a temporary shelter. I'd hate to live in a tent. I don't even like to go camping. So uh, anyway, not to put you campers down. But a tent is not a permanent kind of dwelling, is it? It's temporary. And so the, the Apostle Paul also uses this metaphor in 2 Corinthians And we also remember that Jesus told Peter the kind of death that he would face. Remember that post-resurrection appearance on the seashore of Galilee after Peter had denied knowing Jesus three times and, and and Jesus appears and Peter restores Peter to fellowship. It was there in John 21 that Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter had been following Jesus and sharing Jesus with everybody that he could for almost 40 years now. He must have had so many memories of Jesus. He must have known and remembered so many things that Jesus had taught him that he had tried to pass on and and teach to others. Peter wanted to remind the members of the churches about these very things. He writes in 2 Peter 1.12, So I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. You know, remembering is so important in Scripture. The people of God are always, 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 over and over again, called to remember what God had done for them in the past so that they would never forget what God is doing for them right now in the present And to be mindful of all the things that God would do for them in the future. I think remembering is important because we're so quick to forget, aren't we? We're so quick to forget. But remembering helps remind us of who we are and of all the things that are important to us. I was reminded of this this past Thursday on Thanksgiving Day. Very first thing in the morning, I'm sitting there looking at my phone, and up pop some Thanksgiving pictures from six years ago. This is a picture of our family gathered six years ago. My dad was still with us on that Thanksgiving. My grandkids are so much littler in that picture than they are right now. Our daughter, Sarah, had not moved to Romania yet. But like we always do, to remember... We gathered again as a family on this past Thursday. The grandkids are growing like weeds now. They're becoming big kids. 
we spent some time video chatting with Sarah in Romania who was sharing Thanksgiving with an American and a British friend who lives a few hours away in Romania. That's our family this past Thursday. Thanksgiving 2023 was different than it was in, 2020, in 2017, but the memories ground us. Those memories make us who we are. Oh, we had the traditional turkey and mashed potatoes, just like I've had every Thanksgiving since I was a little boy. But, you know, over the years, our traditions have changed a little bit. I remember there was a year, many years ago, when we added that sweet potato casserole. I think it comes from La Comedia Dinner Theater. It's more like a dessert than a side dish, right? It's got so much brown sugar and crushed pecans on top. And I remember about a dozen years or so ago, we added homemade macaroni and cheese to our, to our table because we invited some friends from out of town that couldn't make it home that year to New York, and that was their tradition, and we loved it so much, it's been on our table every year since. And I know that in our family, there are a couple of silly Thanksgiving songs that seem to make the rounds every single year. One, my sister and I made up when we were little kids. One, my daughter Sarah learned in first grade. I won't sing them for you now, but uh, they help us recall simpler times, funny times. Yes, remembering is what Peter wants the members of the churches to whom he is writing to do. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature did you hear that? You may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You see, it's what the believers know, what they have learned, the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus that Peter wants them to remember. I can just imagine that Peter is remembering that first promise Jesus made to him when he said by the seashore, come and follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Oh, how that promise had come true in Peter's life. Or maybe he's remembering some of Jesus' promises from the Sermon on the Mount, like blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled and blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or even the promise when Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter and said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Undoubtedly, Peter is also remembering how Jesus saved him from drowning after he had walked on water. And how Jesus graciously and lovingly restored him to be a follower after denying him three times. Because you see, Jesus looks beyond what we are right now. 
and he sees all that he created you to be and all that you will become when you follow him. For you see, transformation doesn't come just by knowledge. No, Peter tells us that it is God's divine power that has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The power to grow doesn't come from inside of us. It comes from God. And it is the Holy Spirit that teaches us and reminds us of everything that Jesus ever taught us. Calling the believers to remember everything they'd been taught about Jesus is just the first purpose of Peter's letter. But just remembering is not enough. Peter also calls us to obedience. To actually put into practice everything we've learned. We're going to be working our way through a little acronym today to help us remember the themes of Peter's final letter. It's the acronym ROLE, R-O-L-E. And R stands for remember. We learn and remember God's truth first by reading and studying and understanding the Bible. We learn about the life and character of Jesus through Scripture. We combat the lies of the enemy by the truth of God's word. And we get to know God better and better and better as we talk to him every day through prayer. The O is for obedience. Faith is more than just believing in facts. Faith results in actions. It results in obedience. And Peter encouraged the believers to make every effort to live in obedience to Jesus' commands and to grow in holiness. For as we strive to live our lives following the example of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we grow. We grow in holiness. We grow in sanctification. We grow more and more into the likeness of our Lord. Peter instructs the believers in some of these actions in verses 5 to 11. He writes, For this very reason, make every effort... To add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Peter has already addressed the things that God has done, the things that we are to remember. And now he begins to address the things that we must do. You see, we have to make the effort to build these things, to incorporate these things, to weave these things into the DNA of our life. And these actions Peter writes about don't come to us automatically. And they aren't easy to achieve. In fact, they require a ton of discipline, a lot of hard work. And they're not optional either. They have to become a continual part of our Christian growth, of our Christian walk. And the first on the list is goodness. Now this is more than just how good a person can strive to be. Because the Bible says there's no one who is good because all of us have sinned. No, this goodness comes from God. Because God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Amen? 
You see, we stay connected to our good shepherd, Jesus, because apart from Jesus, none of us can claim to be good. And so to be good begins with knowing Jesus and imitating him. Next is knowledge. Knowledge here is a practical knowledge. It's, it's wisdom. It's wisdom to discern good from evil. It's wisdom to make good choices. Gaining knowledge is gradual. It includes wisdom and discernment which come from knowing God in his son Jesus. No one can become more like Jesus without knowing his word and without living out his word. And so knowledge isn't just referring to information from the Bible. It's not just about head knowledge from scripture. It's about heart knowledge, about God, about who he is. It's not separated from the word of God. Next comes self-control. Those who live a godly life exercise self-discipline. They're able to restrain themselves so that they do not get trapped into sinful desires. Self-control often refers to eating and drinking and temperament. When we're connected to Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers us to control our selfish desires. I don't know about you. I'll be honest here. I've always found self-control to be particularly challenging. You don't have to raise your hand, but <laughs> I'm just going there. You know, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians 5.23, and I think it's one of the hardest, at least for me. Like this past Thanksgiving, I really needed to stop after that first piece of pumpkin pie with whipped cream on it. But that second one was so tempting, I couldn't resist it. Or I really needed to take a minute and put my phone down, set it aside, and spend time with the family that I love that I was gathered with that day. Sometimes I need to count to ten before I speak. Count to ten before I speak. Next is perseverance. It indicates endurance during difficult times. Facing the spiritual battle more than a physical battle or an athletic contest. It's the virtue that's needed to stand firm in one's commitment to Jesus over the long haul. In the face of persecution, in the face of hardships. It's being able to endure suffering for the sake of our faith in Jesus. Then comes godliness. In the Greek world, this virtue pointed to appropriate relationships toward the authorities in one's life which is also expressed in respect to those relationships that God has sanctioned. You see, in the midst of opposition in the world, believers are to live a godly and a holy life. Adding godliness to our character reminds me of something that we learned from Peter a couple of weeks ago in week seven of this series, that we are to be holy because God is holy. That we are to live in such a way that our behavior reflects the character of God. We are to be set apart. Next is mutual affection, sometimes called brotherly love. This is more about horizontal-focused virtues, brotherly and sisterly kindness. The term indicates acts of affection and generosity among physical kin, but also relates to those family relationships in the community of the faith known as the church. And finally, on the list comes love, agape love. 
My friends, love is the supreme Christian virtue. The important point to keep in mind here is that love in this text is an action. It's not an emotion. You see, Peter wants us to act lovingly toward each other. We also see the Apostle Paul described love this way in 1 Corinthians 13 when he writes about what love does, how it acts, not how it feels. Jesus loves people. And anyone who loves will possess the other qualities that Peter mentioned. Peter goes on to tell the believers to whom he is writing, beginning in verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These final qualities that Peter said we are to strive to grow in, that is mutual affection and love like God, bring us to the final, or to the L in our acronym, role. Peter wants to ensure that the followers of Jesus under his care and those who will come after him are effective, that they are productive in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, knowledge of Jesus is not just for knowledge's sake, but it's to produce action in us. It is to change us. It's to transform us into better and better witnesses for Jesus. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answered in this way, Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, love is the supreme law of God. In fact, it's the summary of every other law of God, all wrapped up into one simple truth. God is love, therefore we must love God and love others as followers of God. You see, love is the culmination of the process of sanctification. It's the pinnacle of the second half of the gospel, a profound love of God and a profound love of people. And only 1% of Christ's followers ever reach this, yet this, this is the holiness we aspire to. In addition to Peter's message to remember, obey, and love, he includes a warning in his final letter. And it is a warning to stay true to the gospel. A warning not to succumb to false teachers and false teachings which were infiltrating the church. Peter warned believers that false prophets would rise up and wreak havoc on the church. That the enemy has deceptive ways and will disguise himself even as a false teacher. Peter shares characteristics of the false teachers so the believers would know what to look out for. These false teachers took advantage of believers and would add secretive teachings, and these teachings were destructive. False teachers would try to draw people into their ideas, but Peter reiterated that there is no other truth but Christ. 
He reminded them that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Jesus remains the right path, the narrow path, and the only path that leads to everlasting life. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, but there were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Peter closes his final words to the believers with this, reminding them of what they had been taught from Jesus. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I have loved this series about the Apostle Peter, the unlikely disciple. I like that we've learned and we've watched how the Lord took this normal man a fisherman named Simon and transformed him into Peter, the rock on which he built his church. You know, Peter wasn't a rock at the beginning of his relationship with Jesus, but that's what he became. And Jesus wants to change each of our hearts and our lives too. He can take what we are right now, today, and he can use us to do great things for his kingdom when we surrender to him and when we place ourselves in his hands. I think about Peter when I hear the words of that famous poem by Myra Brooks Welch called The Touch of the Master's Hand. It goes like this. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried. "'Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two? Two dollars. Who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from the back from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bid for this old violin? And he held it aloft with its bow. One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, gone and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried, we just don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, 
the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Will you pray with me? Holy Lord, Master, Jesus, we thank you that you are the master of our lives. We thank you that you took Peter, an ordinary man, with all of his good qualities and all of his failings and falters, and you made him the rock upon which you built your church because he placed himself in your hands, all that he was, all that he had, and you used it. Master, we long to be used by you too. We put ourselves in your hands, beat up, worn out, dusty, out of tune. Normal, everyday men and women. Thank you, Master, for using us. Thank you for turning us into something that you can use for your glory and for your greatness. Lord, we hear the life and the words of Peter echo down to the ages. Let them ring true in our lives as well. That years from now, what we do for you, Lord Jesus, Master, King, would bear fruit for you and bring glory and honor and praise to your name. Through Christ our Lord we pray.